This morning we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 10. At least that will be our launching pad for this morning. And I hope you will bear with me with my very weak voice. And hopefully I won't break out into loud coughing. But if I do, I'll come back eventually. This morning we want to contemplate a marvelous question. And that is, why did God become man? If someone were to ask you that question, how would you answer them? Now, certainly many people know the facts about Christmas, the story of baby Jesus in the manger and so on. But I find it interesting that even among Christians, many times very few really understand why he came. And especially why he came as a man. If you go to the average person on the street and ask them the question, why did Jesus come to earth as a, as a human being, assuming that they even believe that this actually happened, many of them would answer, well, you know, I'm not really sure, but I think Christians believe that, that he did that to show how to love one another Or others might say, I guess maybe he came to bring peace on earth. Or maybe the more philosophical type might say, well, he probably came to expose religious intolerance. And others might say, well, he came to heal the sick. And those, of course, with a little more theological acumen might say, well, he he came to um, deliver the kingdom to the Jews. Or perhaps they would say he came to abolish the Jewish system and institute the church of Jesus Christ. Well, there are elements of all of those things that are true. However, he could have done all of those things without coming to earth, especially coming to earth as a man. So why did he come to earth as a man? What was the purpose in the incarnation? That is the question before us this morning. Well, let me give you the short answer. The short answer is he came to die. You say, well, thanks, Pastor. There goes my Christmas spirit. Merry Christmas, eh? But folks, seriously, if you understand the truth about Christmas and the inconceivable blessings that are the result of Jesus' death, then indeed my words to you this morning are as the angels told or as the angel told the shepherds. Remember in Luke two, I bring you good news of a great joy. He went on to say that born to you this day in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And indeed this is good news. Now this morning I would like to present to you four reasons why God became man. And under each of these categories, we could spend time, if there were time, to find hundreds of other amazing blessings that belong to the redeemed, all because God became man. But we will look essentially at four. And I sincerely pray that these eternal truths that I present to you this morning, we'll we'll stir your hearts to praise this Christmas season. 
and throughout the remainder of your life until we see our Savior face to face. This is my passion for each of you. I I might hasten to add that, that many saints, I fear, kind of play church. I know I've been around that much in the early years of my life. Many saints kind of dig around in the shallow sandbox of of Christian bestsellers. And unfortunately, if that's all you do, you will never experience the exhilaration of, of really knowing the character of God that comes only when you really roll up your sleeves and you're willing to, to dig deep into the depths of the Bible and mine the priceless gems of divine revelation. And dear friends, I, I truly pray that God will give you a passion to know Him. That is my heart for each of you. And to never be content with just kind of a superficial grasp of Scripture. To never be content with the theological ebonics, if you will, that is so indicative of so much of what we hear today and read today in Christian circles. So join with me today as we journey deep into the mountain of Scripture. We want to see more clearly the character of Jehovah God and grasp more fully His wonderful plan of redemption and fall more in love with the lover of our souls. It was some 2,000 years ago, and there is no way that I could even begin to fathom the scene. Therefore, I will not attempt to describe it. But somewhere in the third heaven, Moments before the Holy Spirit would come upon a virgin and cause her to conceive a child. A farewell took place between the Father and the Son. God was about to become man. And the miracle of human and divine chromosomes coming together in a virgin's womb was about to take place. A miraculous conception. And what's amazing is that in that farewell, just before that happened, God has revealed to us a portion of that conversation. And we have an exchange between the Father and the Son that reveals to us the first reason why God had to become a man. And that is, number one, to die in our place. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 5 through verse 7. Here was the farewell that occurred. Notice what it says beginning in verse 5. Therefore, when He comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for Me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the roll of the book it is written of Me, to do Thy will, O God. What an amazing passage of Scripture. You see, friends, here the pre-existent Christ speaks of His incarnation. Quoting with some variation from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. 
And here Jesus speaks of the body that was prepared for him. A body that would ultimately be suited to do thy will, O God, as he says. A body that would be the only sacrifice that would ultimately please the Father. Now the context here is simply the author arguing that all of the sacrifices under the Levitical system in the Old Testament were merely symbolic. Those sacrifices pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And for most of the Jews, even of that day, it had become nothing more than a hollow ritual. But the death of Jesus really foreshadowed the, or I should say, was foreshadowed in all of the Old Testament types and symbols that we read. And this is where the writer of Hebrews is taking the folks. In fact, you can look all the way back in Genesis 3. You remember the coats that God used to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. You can look later on and see another type that foreshadowed the coming Savior in Genesis 4 with the animal offering of, of, of Abel. You can look later on in Genesis 22 and see that foreshadowing in the story of Abraham as he offered Isaac. You can see it all through Leviticus with the Leviticus sacrificial system. You can see it in the brazen serpent that, that, that Moses erected in Numbers 21. And certainly you can see it in the Passover lamb in Exodus 12. You can see the foreshadowing of one that would come to die in our place. But the question again is, why did he have to become a man? Now, in order to understand this, we must remember that sinful man could never atone for his own sin. We deserve the wrath of God. And God's holy and infinite justice could not be satisfied apart from a holy and infinite ransom. And only by His provision could such a remedy be accomplished. And because of this, there had to be a virgin that would conceive the Lord Jesus Christ in order for the child to be fully God and fully man. And as you think about it, had there been any other way, an easier way, one that would have prevented God from sending His very Son, surely God would have thought of that and His infinite wisdom. But no, God could not deny His own justice. And the incarnation and sacrificial death of His Son was the only way. Nothing but perfect righteousness could satisfy the penalty for violating perfect holiness. Therefore, Jesus had to take upon Himself the nature of a man in order to be punished for our sin. Yet, He also had to endure the sufferings for all of the elect. And only God could do that. The work of redemption, therefore, demanded a theanthropon, a God-man, 
one who could supernaturally fuse the human nature with the divine to form an indissoluble bond. And indeed, as we look at Scripture, we see that Jesus was the offspring of David according to the flesh. And yet he was fully God, a ruler whose goings forth are from eternity, as the prophet Micah said in Micah 5.2. You see, a man had to suffer a punishment that only God could endure, thus requiring a theanthropon. A man had to bear the punishment for us all, but only God could drink it to the dregs. You see, a perfect man had to die, but there's no such thing as a perfect man. So, since only God is holy, a holy God had to become a man. Human flesh had to go to the grave, yet only God could overcome the grave. So, both the human and the divine natures had to be supernaturally woven together. That great Puritan theologian, Francis Turretin, writes in this regard, and I quote, Both natures, referring to the divine and the human nature, both natures should be associated, that in both conjoined, that the highest weakness of humanity might exert itself for suffering, and the highest power and majesty of the divinity might exert itself for the victory. You see, friends, when you think about it, how could Christ be our faithful high priest that can sympathize with our infirmities unless he were both God and man. And how could Christ be our mediator unless he, like Jacob's ladder, could bridge the chasm between God and man? How could Christ be our king lest he be united with us as a man? And yet only as God could He reign in our hearts and have dominion over our souls throughout eternity and establish an earthly kingdom and eventually the eternal kingdom. So indeed the Holy Spirit had to produce such a union. So the babe in the manger had to be a God-man, a theanthropon. He had to be born of a virgin in order for Him to be both the Son of Man and the Son of God. Emmanuel, God with us. So, He was a son of a virgin, according to the flesh. But, Emmanuel, God with us, according to the Spirit. So, according to Hebrews 10, verses 5-7, through 7, we read that in eternity past, the Father prepared a human body for the Son, a body that could never be tainted by sin. He had no sin nature and could therefore become the perfect sacrifice to appease the holy justice of God. This was the will of the Father. And Jesus came to do that will as He stepped off the precipice of the throne of glory and came into this world in the womb of the Virgin. He knew precisely what his mission was. 
And he would therefore become the perfect sacrifice to appease the holy justice of God. He would, as Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 7, take upon himself the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want to take you to another passage of Scripture as we look at this marvelous question. We see more of this in Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. There we read, But we do see Him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Dear friends, again, he had to become a man, not just to die, but catch this, but to die for us. As a man, he became our substitute. And this is at the very heart of that great doctrine that we read about in Scripture, the doctrine of the atonement. An atonement simply means to provide a moral or a legal repayment for a fault or for an injury. And in the atonement, we see that there are two things that must occur. And you can remember this very simply. Two words, satisfaction and substitution. In fact... Whenever you think of Christmas from this day forward, I want you to think of those two words, satisfaction and substitution. You see, there had to be satisfaction for the offended holiness of God. And that could only be accomplished by an acceptable substitute. So there has to be substitution for the guilty party, that being us, and the substitute being the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. Now, beloved what would appear to be an unsolvable theological dilemma was all resolved when Jesus came and ultimately died on the cross of Calvary. Here's what the dilemma would be. How could a holy God show mercy to sinful man? Because after all, as we look at Scripture, we see that all sin must be punished. Wages of sin is death. Yet we also know that God's loving kindness endures forever. He is a merciful and a saving God. Jeremiah 9, verse 24, he says, I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So the question is, how can the Lord extend his mercy and his grace to those who have violated his holiness? This is a real dilemma. You see, he cannot merely ignore sin and shower sinners with undeserved blessing. He can't do it that way, for to do so would be to abdicate his holiness. Well, the resolution is found in Christ, the God-man. You see, God paid the penalty himself. That's the point causing mercy and justice to be united at the cross. 
And now, as we read in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he is the satisfaction. He is the appeasement of divine justice as well as the source of divine mercy and grace. Beloved, this is why God had to become a man. This is the heart of the Christmas story. It's all about satisfaction and substitution. And we need to teach this to our children. We need to teach this to our friends and our co-workers at the office. Every opportunity you have, you need to spit in their soup, so to speak. All of the lies and the deceptions that they typically eat, tell them about satisfaction and substitution because this is at the very heart of Christmas. Invade the darkness of their ignorance and rebellion with the glorious light of the gospel of Christ. And so again, in Hebrews 10, we read of of the farewell between the Son and the Father and how He was going to take upon Himself this body prepared for Him to do the Father's will. And then in Hebrews 2, we see now that, 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 that He comes. He's coming to die for our sins. But friends, here's where sound doctrine will raise your Christmas spirit to the very pinnacle of praise. Because not only did He come, not only did He have to become a man to die in our place, but secondly... He came to blaze the trail to glory. Look at verse 10 of Hebrews 2. For it was fitting, it says, for Him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Wow, this is a fascinating text. First, we read that what God did was fitting. In other words, it was appropriate. It was consistent with His character. Well, what was? Well, it was fitting for God to demand satisfaction for His offended holiness. Because again, apart from justice, there would be no holiness. And apart from holiness, there would be no love. So, it was fitting for Him for whom are all things and through whom are all things. In other words, a reference to the sovereign God of the universe. It was fitting for him to humiliate the Lord Jesus Christ to bring about redemption and ultimately glorification. By the way, I want you to notice also that our redemption was not some accident. It was planned and it was executed by a sovereign God. Many times I hear people say, well... Yeah, I was an accident. I was born as an accident. My mom and dad weren't really planning for me. Well, dear friends, the good news with the gospel and with our salvation is that no one is born again by accident. It was all planned by God. But notice this curious statement at the end of verse 10. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Now, This is very important for you to understand. First of all, may I say that there is no moral imperfection implied here. The the perfection brought about by suffering refers to the perfect sacrifice 
that satisfied the justice of God. You see, because of his life of perfect righteousness, he became the perfect substitute. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, we read, And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So, back to Hebrews 2 and verse 10, and the subject at hand, namely, why did God become man? We see the answer here at the end of verse 10, to perfect the author of our salvation through sufferings. Well, you say, what, what does that mean? The author of our salvation through sufferings. Well, the term author in the original language, archagos, means pioneer. It means leader. It means a military hero. Or it's it's used often translated as a commander who goes ahead of his army and blazes a trail to victory. And sometimes, by the way, it's even translated prince. We see that in Acts 3.15 and Acts 5.31. So here's the point. The Lord Jesus Christ was the supreme archagos. He was the perfect example, the perfect leader, the perfect commander, the one who blazed a trail to glory for others to follow. This is why he had to become a man. Now, as I thought about this trailblazing concept, my mind immediately goes to very vivid pictures. Down through the years, I've had the privilege of spending many, many months in the Rocky Mountains from Alaska to New New Mexico and everywhere in between. And I've been on many trails, especially on horseback. And I can see in my mind's eye the blazes on the trees that a trailblazer has made. And what trailblazers will do is they will get up on the stirrups of their saddle and stand as tall as they can and take a hatchet and make a mark, peel away the bark on a tree on the path about the size of a man's foot, sometimes a little bigger, so that people can see the way to go. Now, as the snows come in the winter, many times those marks are just a few feet off the ground. And sometimes, in the deepest places, you won't even see the mark. But it's very important for you to follow those marks that others have blazed. Because it's very easy to get off on a game trail, an elk trail or a deer trail, and it looks like a good trail, and the horse will kind of automatically follow that. But if you're not careful, those trails will often lead to nowhere. They'll just circle around and around. Or sometimes they will lead to a very dangerous place, perhaps some kind of a cliff where some of those animals could traverse, but you couldn't, especially on a horse. It could lead to a place where there are shale slides. And again, as I say, many times those trails just disappear. But you're safe as long as you follow the blazes that have been made by the trailblazer. Do you see the analogy? That's what Jesus was for us. 
I remember a sad story. It was in the mountains of British Columbia. I was with a group of of young men and a number of native young men. And without giving you all of the story, there was a need for some of the men to return to uh, the valley down to another camp some miles away. And several young men were going to leave. And typical of many young men who think they know more than they really do, they failed to heed our directions. We told them to make sure that when you come to a certain fork that you don't take the shortcut. Go up the steep hill rather than taking the shortcut down to the valley. And not being very familiar with the mountains to begin with, they got to that point and they looked at the trail and boy, they were already tired obviously and it was pretty steep to go up one way and yet it seemed like they needed to go over here in this valley and this trail seemed like it led right to it. And so they chose the wrong trail. Well, that trail wasn't so bad at first, but gradually it got to a place where it was steeper and steeper on the side of a cliff. And if you know anything about the mountains, there are shale slides that are very, very dangerous. If you start to slip, you can get to slipping and sliding. And unfortunately, one of the young men began to slip and he fell many hundreds of feet to his death. All because he didn't follow the blazes on the trail. Well, there's certainly a spiritual lesson there, isn't there? Such is the destiny of fools who follow false gods. Such is the destiny of those who depend on their own sinful sense of spiritual direction, who look for the easy way, the wide gate, the broad way rather than following the one who has blazed the trail on the narrow way. But as believers, we can rejoice. And here's the point. Because our commander has gone ahead of all of the saints. And he has blazed that divine trail. He has shown us the way. He is the mighty forerunner of our salvation, blazing the trail to glory. And we also know that his trail is the only one. It is the only path to God. In Acts 4.12 we read, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And Jesus Himself said in John 14.6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am am, am the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. So indeed, He alone is the supreme archagos, the supreme trailblazer, the author of our faith. He is our pattern for obedience. He is our model for suffering. Uh, he, he is our hero, our commander who has conquered death. And He has promised in John fourteen nineteen that because I live, you shall live also. My, what good news that is. All because God became man. In fact, knowing the implications of following our great pioneer of redemption, who has paid the penalty for our sin and conquered death, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, 
Where is your sting? And the point is, it's not there. Because God became man. To die in our place, to blaze the trail to glory. But may I give you a third reason? To defeat Satan. Oh, this is a precious thought. In Hebrews chapter 2, once again, notice, if you will, in verse 14 and 15, we read, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now, folks, let me help you understand this. This is an amazing thing. He says, since then the children share in flesh and blood. The word share there is koinonia. You're familiar with that term. It's the, we often translate that fellowship. That means to share something in common. Well, what do we all share in common? Well, we share flesh and blood. We share a, a human nature. But notice the next phrase says, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Now here it's fascinating. There's a totally different Greek word that is used here. Meteko, not koinonia. And meteko means to take hold of something that is not naturally one's own kind. To take hold of something that is foreign. Well, what did he take hold of that was unnatural? <laughs> our flesh took on our nature to that extent, to die in our place so that we might take hold of His divine nature, a nature that doesn't belong to us. And that's why in 2 Peter 1.4, or I should say, we read of, of the glorious promise that we have that we are now been made partakers of the divine nature. So, he did this. Why? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So another re reason why God became a man is to conquer Satan, to defeat Satan. Now, let me remind you of death. <laughs> death is very unnatural. It's not the way God originally intended it. And certainly all men apart from faith in Christ fear death unless they've been told some kind of a lie. And we know biblically that death was brought about by Satan. He was the one who tempted Eve and, and Adam in the garden. And because of Adam's sin, we are now all sinners and we are all therefore guilty of violating God's holy law. In fact, in Romans 5, verse 12, we read, Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, in some inscrutable sense, all men, save the Lord Jesus Christ, actually sinned in Adam. This is what the Bible teaches. We all somehow took part in Adam's sin. We all inherited the propensity to sin, a sin nature. In fact, the Old Testament rite of circumcision 
was the symbol of that. So, because of Satan's temptation and Adam's sin, all humanity now is subject to death. Now, biblically, there are three different manifestations of death. There's the spiritual death or separation from God that belongs to unbelievers. We read about that in Ephesians 2 and verse 1, that, that, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. There's another manifestation of death called physical death that we all are aware of. We see this happening all around us. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. But then thirdly, there is an eternal death. It's called the second death in Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. And this is more than just separation from God. This is the eternal torment in the lake of fire that is the second death. In fact, in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, we have a description of the horrific scene of graves giving up the wicked dead. And in that text we read, and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now, the destroyer's great plan, Satan's great scheme, is to see to it that all three aspects of death, that all three of those terrible realities become the eternal fate of man. The devil will do anything he can to rob God of his glory by keeping souls separated from him. But the incarnate Christ according to this text, rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. In other words, he rendered him powerless to keep people blind and dead in their sins, to keep them enslaved to their lusts and incarcerated in the kingdom of darkness. All because God became man. And, and not only that, the text goes on to say, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The New King James translates that phrase this way, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Folks, the bottom line is this. Jesus Christ has not only broken the chains of spiritual bondage, keeping people incarcerated in the kingdom of darkness and eternal separation. But he has also cut the cords of fear, the fear of death. As believers, we don't have that. Unless you're somehow walking out of fellowship with God or you're doubting your salvation or you believe some, some erroneous doctrine. Instead, for the believer, we can echo the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Death is swallowed up in what? In victory. You see, Satan, that, that diabolical fiend and all of his minions would keep us living in sin until we die. And then consign us to eternal separation from God. But this fiend has been defeated by the Theanthropon, by the God-man Jesus. So those who have never placed their faith in 
the Savior should fear all three aspects of this death because that will indeed be their eternal faith lest they repent. But not so for those whose faith is in the One who came to die in our place. Who came to blaze the trail to glory for us and who has defeated Satan. In fact, because of Christ, Satan has absolutely no power over us. Don't you realize that? In 1 John 4.4 we read, Greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. And James tells us in 4.7, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You see, again, Satan is a defeated foe for all whose allegiance belongs to Christ the Lord. And in 1 John 3.8 we read, The one who practices sin is of the devil. In other words, if you have a person whose lifestyle is a pattern of rebellion against God, a pattern of sin, it's real clear, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. But it goes on to say, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that He might destroy the works of the devil. Isn't that great news? You say, well, what are the works of the devil? Well, there's a number of them. We read in the Bible that he rules the world, that he instigates rebellion, that he is the source of, of temptation and sin. He is the one that, that persecutes the saints. He brings accusations against us before God. He is the father of lies, the instigator of false doctrine. He is the one that many times fills false teachers and empowers false prophets. But not only that, He has the power of death to all those who are separated from God because they have not placed their faith in Christ. But you see, He is a vanquished foe. Why? Because God became man. To die in our place, to blaze the trail to glory, to defeat Satan, but fourthly, also to become our sympathetic high priest. This is the fourth reason why God became man. Hebrews chapter 2 again. Look at verse 17 and 18. There we read that He had to be made like His brethren in all things, that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for since he himself was tempted in that which he, was, he has suffered, now underline this, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You see, again, because God became man, he experienced all the temptations of Satan, all of the temptations of the world. When you read the Scripture, you read that he felt the pangs of hunger. He felt the pangs of, of, of weakness that comes through thirst. He felt the sting of slander. He experienced the pain of loneliness, of fatigue, of, of rejection. The Lord Jesus knew in His humanity what it was to grieve over someone that He loved who had died. Remember how He shook with grief at the tomb of Lazarus. In fact, in his grief, we see him in Gethsemane with the prospect of the cross facing him. We see him sweating great drops of blood. 
as we read the Scriptures, we read that he even knew what it was to exercise faith. Can you imagine that? In fact, in Hebrews 4 and verse 15, we read, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Child of God, please understand. Because God became man, He is not only our Savior, but our sympathizer. Isn't that a precious thought? This is the message of Christmas. You see, he is, not, he is not some distant God that is indifferent to our needs, that is far removed from our experiences and therefore somehow insensitive to our frailties, the types of things that tear us apart. In fact, he is now at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf because he can sympathize with what we experience. You know, this is an amazing thought to me, this phrase in Hebrews 4, verse 15, that I just mentioned, where it says that he has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. I was thinking about this, and certainly as sinners, we're all prone to sin. I don't think we'd get any argument from anybody there, unless you're just so filled with pride you can't see it. But as sinners, we're all prone to sin, and we're weak in the face of temptation. Therefore... We have no way of knowing the utter sinfulness of sin, nor can we assess the ultimate power of temptation because it takes so little to cause us to sin. But not so with the spotless Lamb of God who had no capacity to sin. Now, some will say, well, now that's not fair. I mean, if he couldn't sin... How can he say that he can sympathize with the rest of us, with the sin nature? Oh, you're wrong. Here's why. Think of this now. Because of his utter holiness, his sensitivity to sin was infinitely greater than ours. Infinitely greater. And the level of temptation that was thrown against him was infinitely greater than anything we will ever experience. May I ask you, have you ever resisted to the point of sweating great drops of blood? I haven't. Or to the point where you shed blood as on the cross? Our sympathetic Savior has. In fact, in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 3, we, we read, For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. So in other words, we are told there to consider Him who has endured such hostility. Well, for this reason, dear friends, there is nothing that we could possibly endure in our life that He has not already endured in ways that we cannot even imagine. for this reason that my mind goes to that great old hymn, No One Understands Like Jesus. He's a friend beyond compare. Meet Him at the throat of mercy. He is waiting for you there. No one understands like Jesus, the chorus goes. 
When the days are dark and grim, no one is so near, so dear as Jesus. Cast your every care on Him. Friends, I hope you take great comfort in this marvelous truth this morning. Because God became man, He understands your loneliness. If you're here today with that. He understands your feebleness of body. He understands hearts that break over sin and over severed relationships. He understands hearts that are breaking over wayward children or breaking over a loved one who has slipped into eternal darkness and separation as well as those who have slipped into eternal glory. He understands all that. Whatever it is, because God became man, He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Dear friends, this is the why behind Christmas. Why God became man. And I hope you'll remember this very simple outline. Why did God become man? Well, He did so to die in my place. To blaze the trail to glory for me. To defeat Satan for me and to become my sympathetic high priest. And may I challenge each of you to meditate upon these eternal truths. Allow them to to shape your mind, to shape your thoughts, and to stir your hearts to praise. And may this Christmas take on a whole new meaning as you contemplate the love of God who alone could satisfy His own justice. And who alone could be our substitute? Let's pray together. Father, thank You for these glorious truths. Cause them to stir our hearts afresh with with the matchless love of Jesus. Lord, give us a burden to teach these truths to our children. And give us opportunity, Lord, to share them with our friends and with our neighbors and our family. Lord, may this be a blessed Christmas for all of us. Because once again, we have immersed ourselves in the depths of your infinite love. And we have come forth renewed and refreshed and invigorated, rejoicing in our salvation. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.